coming up on today's show, some questions about the immigration process for Ukrainian refugees in light of the conflict with Russia. Elections Canada says they're surprised to learn that there's a plan afoot between the Liberal and NDP merger to change some of the rules around voting in our country. Will it come to light? And we're going to find out all about the Spinosaurus. It's not all that often that you'll hear Conservative MPs and NDP MPs take the same line of questioning in committee, um, but that's exactly what happened last week. It was a committee uh, with the immigration minister, the liberal immigration minister, and the discussion was around the Ukraine refugee program. Now, not necessarily that it's a bad thing, certainly not, um, but the question is, why don't we do the same for people in other countries? And that was a line of questioning that was put to the minister. We're going to talk to Jenny Kwan now, who is the NDP immigration uh, critic. Jenny, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's just go through, I mean, this situation. And, and it's being asked in a lot of circles. There's no doubt about it. It's a fair question, I think. But we just need to clarify, this is not frustration about what's being done to help Ukrainian refugees, right? That's not the issue here. Oh, absolutely not. Um, Everyone who's uh, raised the issue that the government should be applying uh, special immigration measures for um, people in Afghanistan and other conflict zones such as Yemen, Hong Kong, etc., have been very clear to say they absolutely support the work that is being done to support Ukrainians uh, in this time of crisis. So it is not about that, but it is rather to say Canada can do more and to support other regions that are in conflict where there is a grave need for humanitarian action. Um, So when we take a look around the world, I I mean, obviously Afghanistan and what happened there this summer leaps to mind, but what what other areas do you think Canada could apply some of these same, I don't know if they're rules, but, you know, bring a similar program in? Yeah, so, you know, in the case of Afghanistan, it's true, the government has announced that we would bring in uh, 40,000 refugees. Now, the program in its delivery has been exceedingly slow and is fraught with problems. One of the suggestions that witnesses at the special Afghanistan committee have actually said is that the government should be, for example, be doing biometrics in neighboring neighboring countries for Afghans. Uh, And that is what the government is doing for Ukrainians. And so we should be doing the same. There's no reason why we can't do the same. Similarly, the government has announced uh, for Ukrainians a special immigration measure where family members here in Canada can sponsor extended family uh, members to come to Canada uh, as a permanent resident. Uh, and people, uh, the Afghan community has been calling for the same thing, and the government should should be able to do that uh, as well and extend that measure for Afghans uh, as well. Other regions, Yemen uh, is another example mm-hmm. where it's just atrocious what's happening there, right? And so Canada can do more to support uh, that situation. The people of Hong Kong, for example, who's been faced with unprecedented uh, um, um assault on their democratic rights, where Hong Kong's basic law has all just been done away with. And people there are also seeking uh, for refuge. And uh, they've been calling, for example, for the government to uh, extend the extended family sponsorship uh, reunification process to them uh, as well. Uh, But the government hasn't acted. So there's, you know, uh, we, we should be looking at these issues to say, how can we apply these special immigration measures 
to all these other regions and not just sort of say, oh, it's just for this one, and uh, you know, for Ukrainians and then not for Afghans uh, or Yemen or um, Hong Kong or any number of these uh, humanitarian crises that are taking place across the globe. In the other crises that you mentioned, um, is there any situation that compares to the framework that's been set up very quickly for Ukrainian refugees, uh, with the waiving of visas, the three-year, just come on over, you can stay for three years kind of thing. I mean, it, 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 how different is what is being offered to Ukrainian refugees from what's being offered to other refugees in war-torn regions? Yeah, so the measures uh, for Ukrainians is really expedite uh, the process in getting people out of um, um, Ukraine to Canada as a visitor, not so much as a permanent resident or a refugee for that matter, but as a visitor. And the assumption, I think, is that people would have family or friends yeah. who could support them here. But the reality is also this. What's coming to the forefront is that, in fact, they are going to need a little bit more support uh, than just sort of getting to Canada. Because once they arrive, even though if they can access a work permit, not everybody would be able to work, you you know, there are elderly people uh, who would not be able to work. There will be children, for example, who would need support. Uh, and for the parents, they're going to need childcare, access to childcare support so that they can go to work. You know what I mean? So there's a series of things that needs to uh, put in place to, to uh, effectively support them as well. And that needs to be done from the Canadian government. That is an aside. In terms of the special immigration measures, yes, the government has put in uh, these measures um, quickly. Uh, however, a more effective way, frankly, that they could have done this is to actually offer uh, visa-free travel for Ukraine. Uh, and that would actually save uh, some of the, the work that needs to be done in terms of people having to go through the process of applying for a visa uh, and so on. Right. And, and so, um, so, yes, the government has brought in some measures. Some is better than none. I will say that. Uh, and although my prefer, the NDP prefer uh, process is still a visa-free Ukraine process. But with that being said, what we have right now is an expedited uh, visa travel uh, for three years um, for people. And I haven't really seen the government extend this kind of expedited uh, measure for any other uh, regions that are in conflict. Um, now, in response, um, the Liberal government, you know, saying, no, this is not racialized. It's not about race. It's not about religion. It's not about anything like that. And as you mentioned, you know, it's access to Western countries. And you think we can set that up in Afghanistan. But, you know, if you take a look at Yemen, Somalia, I mean, Hong Kong, do we have a, a situation where, you know, the government is saying, well, they can easily access Western countries just by crossing the Ukrainian border. They can be processed by Canadian officials in, you know, Poland and all the rest. Um, is that not a fair um, characterization of the situation in some ways? Well, in some ways it's true uh, in that... Um, you know, people in Ukraine can cross over to neighboring countries, Poland and others, uh, and be able to sort of get uh, access to these various processes. Uh, but with that being said, it doesn't mean to say, though, that um, people in other uh, regions would not be able to access 
um, these kinds of services. It does mean, though, that the government have to work a little bit harder mm-hmm. to facilitate that process. So in the case of Afghanistan, uh, you know, uh, I'll raise that. I mean, really, the Taliban is literally hunting people down. People's lives are in jeopardy. People are in hiding. Uh, they're going to be faced with, um, you know, starvation, malnutrition is already happening uh, in an unprecedented way uh, uh, there. Um, and the government, our government's not helping people get to Pakistan, for example, yep. to a neighboring country. But people are making their way out. But what, some of them have made it out and they're just stuck in uh, Pakistan. And so, you know, what, what's our Canadian government doing to help facilitate a better process uh, for people to get out of these third countries. The government is saying, oh, but we have refugee measures. Once you're in a third country, we can help you out. But, you know, it, it's not really happening uh, in 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 a effective way, uh, I would argue, or an efficient way. Setting up biometric centers uh, in these other regions uh, is something entirely doable. I know that with the Syrian Refugee Initiative, for example, the government did some unprecedented measures, uh, including way the refugee uh, uh, determination requirement uh, in Syria. They could do the same for mm-hmm. people in Afghanistan, as an example. So it's not exactly the same in terms of what's being done for Ukraine, but rather to use that thinking and be ready and willing to think outside of the box, put the center of the humanitarian crisis as the focal point, uh, and to bring in measures to adapt to the environment to which people are in. That's really what I'm asking of the government. And there's some duplications. You know, in the case of providing a family uh, uh, sponsorship um, measure for extended families, that's entirely doable for every nationality. It doesn't matter what country you're from. You could do that uh, immediately. And uh, setting up biometric centers in neighboring countries, the government can absolutely deploy that measure in Afghanistan and other uh, countries as well. So, um, So what we need is the willingness for the government to think outside of the box, to um, understand these humanitarian crises. Time is of the essence, and we need to get on with it. In the case of Afghanistan, I'll tell you this. I mean, it's shocking to me. We have NGOs, Canadian NGOs, on the ground who want to help, willing to help, have the resources to help, but but they're not able to do so. Why? Because our Canadian law stipulates that, uh, the anti-terrorism law stipulates that, you can not. And they fear that they would be prosecuted by the Canadian government by providing aid uh, in Afghanistan as deemed to be somehow a terrorist act in, in working in collaboration with the Taliban. Now, these are NGOs that are established in our community for many, many years or decades of having done humanitarian work. They are not there to support the Taliban. They are, supp- they are there to support Afghans who are being targeted by the Taliban. And, and, and for civilians who are starving, who are dying, mm-hmm. children dying of malnutrition, they have food, they have medicine that they want to deliver, but they fear that they would be prosecuted by the Canadian uh, government with terrorism uh, uh, laws. So 
so they're not there. So the government needs to find a workaround on that. All the other countries, by the way, have managed to do so and found an exemption so that their aid organizations can do this work. But our Canadian government has not been able to do that. I mean, what is the hang-up here? People are dying. Children are starving. And these aid organizations are not terrorist groups. They are there to help people who are struggling and who are suffering because of the Taliban. And so, you know, when we look at these issues, we really have to take a um, uh, an approach that is broader than our standard measures uh, and to think in such a way to say, what can we do to help us as, as opposed to taking the attitude to say, here are the limitations of right. what we cannot do. Um, Ms. Kwan, thank you so much for your time today. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I do appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. You bet. That is Jenny Kwan, uh, who is an NDP immigration critic, part of the committee last week that was holding the Liberal government to task in terms of, why are we doing this for refugees from Ukraine, but not from Yemen and Syria and Afghanistan and Hong Kong and Somalia, and the list goes on. Details on the Liberal NDP Supply and Confidence Agreement continue to emerge. And last week, um, interesting development, um, located within the text of that accord was a note that um, government would explore some changes to the way Canadians actually vote in federal elections. Three days of polling instead of just one. Uh, changes to mail-in ballots and some other discussions were brought forward. Um the person in charge of Elections Canada, Stéphane Perrault, chief electoral officer, said, oh, really? Uh, we didn't know any of that and said, you know, for any future changes to the act, it'll be important to take time to properly consider these kinds of changes. Uh, that's according to Elections Canada. The chief officer would look forward to discussing those changes. So nothing is being done at this point, but they are proposals and things that you might expect to hear about prior to the next federal election. The question is, what exactly is on the table here? And why? Why would we need to do this, I think, is the bigger question. So we're going to chat now with Blake Desjardins, who is an NDP MP from Edmonton, Griesbaugh. Uh, Blake, thanks for your time today. appreciate you joining us. Hey, Shay, it's always a great time to speak to Albertans and yourself, of course. Yeah, I, an interesting thing that this sort of emerged last week, um, I, to be honest, that it wasn't on my radar. Why is this something that the NDP and the Liberals think might be a good idea? Why do we need to make changes to the way Canadians cast ballots? That, that's a great question. It's one I think that Canadians should be particularly particularly concerned with. And I think you mentioned Perot just earlier, the the elections uh, the elections Canada officer, uh, elections officer, and he actually tabled a few reports in previous regarding issues they had faced and issues that Canadians faced and longstanding ones. In particular, the fact that many working class people can't actually get to the polls because they're working long hours and they may be working out of the city, for example, or the place of origin. And we have that a lot in Alberta. We have people going to camp. We have people going up north. And they don't ever get to the point where they can cast their ballot and have their voices heard. So we heard a lot about that. And we also heard from Indigenous communities where polling stations weren't even on their, weren't even within their proximity. And so they had 0% voter turnout this last election. You know, Perot did apologize to uh, to Canadians when, when that became very relevant. And, of course, apathy is the final big reason. You know, we see a decrease in people voting overall. And a good sign of a healthy democracy is to see the number of people participating increase. But we're seeing alarming rates of it going down. So we know there's barriers, and we have to address them. Um, 
So let's just walk through a couple of them. Three-day polling, how would that work? I mean, across the country, Mm -hmm. instead of having a single day where, you know, we know the polls are set up from 8 in the morning to late in the evening or whatever the hours are, uh, and everybody shows up, now you're just going to have it open for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Well, of course, it's uh, it's dependent on when an election's called. But if let's assume that it will be on a regularly scheduled election in October, the ideal situation would be, of course, on a weekend where people have, are the most available. Uh, we can't control that, of course. It could end up on a weekday. There's going to be, if with three days, of course, folks who will be working uh, some parts of their workday. We want to make sure that there's one workday available for folks. And you might know, people might already know, their employers do have to give you some part, some leeway to to get there. Uh, but some folks just, of course, aren't at their workplaces or their polling sites. So I think three days does provide the maximum level of of, uh, of availability for people. You know, when, yeah. whether it's their weekend or their workday, they can make it out to vote, and we want to make sure they have the opportunity. Also in the agreement is talk to change the way some of the mail-in balloting is processed. I'm not exactly sure what it means. Are you familiar with what's being proposed in terms of how we handle mail-in voting in Canada? Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of concern, which is legitimate concern, as to when mail-out ballots take place and, of course, the transit time between mail-in ballot period and the reading and counting of mail-in ballots. And there's a lot of issues because of geography, largely. You know, if I'm mailing something from Edmonton and I'm mailing my mail-in ballot, it gets to the, it gets to the election office pretty darn quick. Yeah. But if I'm phoning from, you know, let's say Wood Buffalo, somewhere in Wood Buffalo County and a rural community uh, or even southern rural communities, Sometimes their their local uh, post office only delivers mail three times or will collect mail three times a week or even just once a week. You know, rural Canadians know this. They know how difficult it is to get mail at a reasonable time, but also to get mail to places in a reasonable time. So it would it would require mail-in ballots to look at fairness of rural voters and uh, and the transit time for mail. Um. Question, we, we have advanced polling, right, Blake? I mean, you don't necessarily have to vote on the election day, and we give you several mm-hmm. options leading up to the election. I mean, are, 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 I guess the question is, are we not doing enough? I mean, there are ways to do it with advanced polling, mail-in vote, and mm-hmm. your employer has to give you time off to vote anyway. I mean, don't we have a lot of framework already in place here? Oh, I think that we definitely, in our democratic society, have some things in place over the last many years. You know, Stephen yeah. Harper as well. Help to uh, help to amend some of the election laws. Help us have more accessible voting. But the reality is, our elections officers still saying it's not enough. You know, Canadians are still not exercising the power that they have. And in a healthy democracy, it's incumbent on our parliament and all parliamentarians to look at ways we can improve that and make more options available for folks. Because the the reality is, we're facing times where people are feeling voiceless. People are feeling their votes don't count, and are really feeling apathetic towards the whole system. And I think this is a really great way to begin our work in making sure people are better represented, people are participating better. And if I were a voter, and I am a voter, you know, many people want to see our practices and our institutions be more available to people and not big corporations or big uh, a big um, or have to work on the time of big companies, but they want to have the freedom and legitimacy to do uh, their voting when and when it's most efficient for them. So I think providing convenience is a good thing. Um, in terms of where this discussion sits at this point and where it might go, um, I know it's part of the text of the accord between the Liberals and the NDP. Um, how big of a factor is this for the NDP party? Is this something they'll be pushing forward as part of the deal? I mean, is this? do you think we'll see changes next time Canadians head to the polls, or is this just something that's being proposed at this point? 
Well, of course, we, there is a, there's independent process with the Elections Canada. They're an independent body, of course. So th- we do have to work very closely with Elections Canada and making sure that the proper distance and arms, arms length is there between government and the elections officer. And so I think we're, we're going to, of course, encourage the government to look at reforms uh, with Elections Canada that are going to better position Canadians to have a better say. But of course, the, at the end of the day, it's an independent agency, and they're going to take those, take that into consideration and the other issues that they're dealing with in, 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 re, in relation to making things more accessible to Canadians. They have committed, though, because of the gross oversight related to the lack of polling stations in northern communities and indigenous communities, how unacceptable that is. Like, it's extreme when we think about it. You know, a whole community not having one polling station uh, is, is pretty bad. And, and when, we, when we see that, we have to be, have the courage to correct it. And it's not like well, there's no problem here. It's, uh, you know, you no, no, see no evil. This is mm-hmm. real people are, are not being able to cast ballots. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, you should have a polling station in every riding. Absolutely. There's no question about it. Uh, and I think some of the concern that people have in the audience, and I'm just getting a bunch of texts here, Blake, is we already do a lot. I mean, it, there's some people that just aren't going to vote. And what about politicians? If if you can't inspire people to actually head to the polls, if you've got apathy among the electorate, is that really because, you know, they have six different ways they can vote, but if they had eight, they'd be more excited about it? Oh, I love that your, your listeners are engaged with that discussion because I agree. In rural communities in particular, I'm from a rural community originally. I came from eastern Alberta. We have some of the lowest in around St. Paul area, some of the lowest voting turnout. And and I agree with the, with your listeners. It may be because the candidates aren't inspiring us. Yeah. But at the same time, we have long-standing incumbents that are taking the election for long periods of time. Like they're, they're sitting in these seats for long periods of time. Look at any of the rural districts in northern Alberta. Some of these MPs have sat there for a very long time and are often getting less than 50% of the vote more than more, more often than none. And it's a very serious issue when we think about that. So I agree with your viewers or your, your listeners, sorry, when it comes to, to apathy, it's likely because there's not the right candidates. Yeah. Interesting discussion. Blake, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Right on. Thanks so much, Jay. You Thanks bet. So Talk much. to you well, soon. Everyone. That's right. Talk soon. Bye. That's Blake Desjardins, NDP MP from Edmonton Greasebaugh. And uh, one of the people speaking about this, and as I say, I mean, if you're just joining us, basically what we're talking about here is, um, you know that the the Liberals and the NDP have reached an agreement in terms of um, the NDP will support the Liberal government on confidence measures in exchange for some some policy goals. Well, one of the things that's uh, in the text of this accord that they've reached is um, a pledge to explore ways with Election Canada to make it easier for people to vote. That includes the possibility of extending Election Day to three days. Okay, so instead of having, you know, we've, this is the day that we vote, well, now we're going to vote over three days. Um, changing the way that we process mail-in ballots, extending the timelines on those. Um, consideration to allow people to vote at any polling station in their riding. You know how it is now? Here's your polling station that you need to attend. Nope. Now you can go to any polling station. Um, do we need this? This is the question, and I'm all for making sure that anybody and everybody who wants to cast a vote has the right to cast a vote. I think that's fundamental. We can't... Um, we can't deny that, but isn't there not some obligation on the voter here? I mean, it's not like it's all that onerous. Now, of course I live in a city. It may be different if you're in a remote community where, you know, you have to travel to a polling station or whatever the case may be, um, with mail-in ballots, can we not work our way around this with advanced polls, with the fact that employers are required to give you time off from work to go and vote? Does three days instead of one day really make any difference? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this is the issue with why we have apathetic 
voters or we have low voter turnout. I think more so it has to do with the fact that people are just sick and tired of the whole process. They've had enough of the entire situation. Spinosaurus, the largest carnivorous dinosaur ever, and they're learning more about them, and it's really cool how they're figuring this out. They're using bone density. It's going to be a fun conversation, so we're going to chat now with Dr. Jingmei O'Connor, who's an associate curator of Fossil Reptiles Field Museum in Chicago and the co-author of the study. Dr. O'Connor, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's always fun to to talk dinosaurs with people. It sure is. I love it. I can't get enough of it. So we're talking about Spinosaurus, which I came to learn is the largest carnivorous dinosaur ever, which blew my mind. So describe a Spinosaurus for us. What are we What are we talking about here? Well, Spinosaurus, um, the name spines. You might infer that it's got spines somewhere. So it has on its on its dorsal vertebrae, like the, the, the neural spine that's present on all dinosaur dorsal vertebrae, is extremely elongated so that it would have had this big fan-like structure on its back. Like if you think of a of a, a, a an extinct animal like Dimetrodon, right? That's yeah. that um, non-mammalian synapsid that has that fan on its back. Spinosaurus had a very similar-looking fan. Uh, another one of its very specialized characteristics is that it has like People often call it, uh, well, another member of this group called Suchomimus means crocodile mimic. So all of them have these very elongate, very narrow snouts mm-hmm. with peg-like teeth that look a lot like what you would see in a, an extant crocodile. So I would say those, those are the two most defining characteristics of Spinosaurus. How big was it if it's bigger than a T-Rex? little bit bigger than a t-rex like it's uh, estimated to be about 15 meters long or 49 feet for us americans so that's just a foot or two longer than the largest t-rex like sue so not not that much bigger but but bigger still now enlighten me on this debate about whether or not they lived on land or lived on water and sarah was just talking about jurassic park and its involvement in that in that uh, franchise so was this a, a raging debate as to whether or not these these creatures were water animals or land animals? If you know, if you are one of these you know big dinosaur enthusiasts who likes to go on social media a lot, then yes, it was this 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 big debate. Everybody got really you know I don't know like very emotional about whether or not <laughs> whether or not Spinosaurus was foraging in the water. So we know that it lived on land, but the question was whether or not it was swimming in water to hunt for food or just wading around in shallow water and and catching fish. Because we know that it ate fish, not only because of the shape of its snout and its teeth, but also because some specimens have been found with fish remains inside the stomach. But the thing is, like, almost all, all dinosaurs, except for Spinosaurus, are purely terrestrial animals. They all live on land. They do everything on land. Uh, you know, except for living dinosaurs, we do have some living dinosaurs like penguins that will forage in water, but then do the rest of their, they, they, will, they will sleep and they will breed on land. But this is something that's really weird because other groups of reptiles have evolved to go all the way back in the water and like never come out, right? Like even mammals have done this in the case of whales. And, uh, you know, in the past, there's all these other extinct animals that people confuse with dinosaurs, like plesiosaurs, ichthyosaurs, mosasaurs. These are other lineages of reptiles not related to dinosaurs, that became fully aquatic. Now, this has never happened in dinosaurs, which is just 
really strange. But Spinosaurus seemed to be somewhere intermediate, like it actually possibly was swimming. So, uh, you know, the first, uh, so, well, I mean, there's like a really interesting history with Spinosaurus, but I'll just cut through to cut back to like the early 2000s. The first really good specimen of Spinosaurus has been found uh, in Morocco. And uh, at first, you know, just parts of it were found. And then people started suggesting that maybe it was semi-aquatic. And then they found the tail and the tail looked like it was kind of like, like a paddle-like tail, like kind of like you would see in an eel, like seemed like something that was very much adapted for swimming. It also has these very broad feet that seem like they might be a little bit paddle-like. Uh, but then, you know, this is just qualitative assessment of the skeleton, right? Scientists are looking at it and say, hey, I think that maybe this was, these are adaptations for swimming. But then other paleontologists would look at the same bones and say, nope, <laughs> these are not adaptations for swimming. This animal is on land, right? So, so how do you move away from these type of qualitative arguments, just like two paleontologists with different interpretations? And you can't really, you know, that doesn't get you anywhere. I think this, well, well, I disagree with you. I think that, right? So um, what my postdoc, Matteo Fabri, who led this study, decided to do was to find some other kind of signal that is true across all animals, regardless of interpretation, that can shed light on, w- on what animals are doing, not just Spinosaurus, but any animal. So what he decided to do was look at bone density, because it had already been noticed that Spinosaurus had really dense bones. Okay. But is this something that uh, is unique to Spinosaurus, or is it something that, in, like, that does it indicate if this animal was living in water? Is this a signal that can be used like, across all animals? So what he did is he went around uh, getting, like, checking the bone density and, you know, in birds, in mammals, in, in crocodiles, in, in other swimming, you know, marine reptiles that went extinct long ago and looking at their bone density and then analyzing this using some fancy statistical methods to see what interpretation best fit the data that we saw. And the interpretation is that animals that live in water have denser bones. Now, there are a couple exceptions that you have to take into account when you're interpreting this data. For example, sauropod dinosaurs, Mm -hmm. those really big ones on land, really long necks. They also have dense bones, and also things like elephants have dense bones. But this is because they are really heavy animals carrying the weight on land. Yeah. So, but their dense bones are only in their legs. The rest of the skeleton is not dense because the legs have to like support all the weight, right? So that's how you can like you know tease out those different the different signals in this data. But, uh, but looking at bone density uh, across the skeleton in Spinosaurus, the entire skeleton is dense. So you can rule out that the density is just related to its weight. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, this density that you see matches kind of like what you see in, in animals like penguins or hippopotamuses, like that also are animals that spend a lot of time Primarily in water. aquatic, yeah. Why, why? why? Why do you need bone density to live in water? Uh, to counteract buoyancy, right? Like, so okay. most of us, okay. we're, you know, we have so much water in our bodies that we tend to, to float. So if you have denser bones, then it helps you to really get to dive underwater and really like swim around underwater foraging for prey. Interesting. So now, sounds to me like, I mean, this is convincing to a guy like me, but I imagine the fight continues with scientists, right? Like, is this, or has this settled the debate? Well, 
for the, va- the vast majority of scientists are, are really excited about, about this data set. They recognize how much work went into it, and they recognize that this is a very clear signal. However, you know, I always say the number one thing that holds science back is like is the ego in all of us. Like some people <laughs> just can't admit they're wrong. And I just to all you future scientists out there. The most important quality is to be able to say you're wrong, because all we're doing is making hypotheses on available data. And when you have new data, you've got to adjust these hypotheses. Some people have trouble doing that. So, you know, the the debate continues, but I would suggest it's primarily for that reason. Doctor, thank you so much. Awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.